Hello and welcome to another edition of the Mostly Weather podcast. My name is Chloe Whitton and today I'm joined by podcast regulars Neil Robinson. Hello. Doug McNeil. Hey, yeah. And today's special guest, who is Laura Gilchrist. Hello there. Hi, Laura. Do you want to give us a bit of an introduction as to what you do here at the Met Office? Okay, so uh, my job title is the rather long Deputy Chief Operational Meteorologist. It sounds very important. Uh, It could be, yes. I'm based in what is known as the Guidance Unit, which is the sort of core, if you like, of the forecasting world of the Met Office. So what I do in essence is produce guidance from which all other forecasters around the Met Office around the world uh, will use to help tell a consistent story to their customers, the public and anyone else who's interested in having a forecast. Great. So we're in the middle of a a mini series of podcasts here, aren't we? So this is the second of three podcasts all about how our weather forecast is made. So this one, we're going to talk about how we actually generate the forecast, right? So the last episode, we talked about how we got all the observations we need in order to start off our weather forecasts. The next episode, we're going to talk about communicating the weather forecast. But this time, we're talking about how we make a weather forecast. And in one word, the way we do that is with models, right? That's it, exactly. And in the last episode, so do listen if you haven't heard it, it's very much cornerstone to what we're going to talk about. We came up with the figure of 20 to 30 million observations being generated every every day, was that? Yeah. Something like that. So we need to work out, well, what do we do with those observations to get them into models to then get to generating the forecast and Laura's and using that for something that's really worthwhile? So, Doug, what's a model? Okay, so I, sometimes I prefer, I, I'd say, simulator. Yeah. Okay, I think simulator is a, it gets across um, the idea about what a, 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 a weather model or a... Um, climate model is. So it it basically is um, a set of equations, mathematical equations, that you put onto a computer that describe the world around us. It's a big sum, right? It's a big sum. It's a bunch of big sums. Yeah. Um, uh, all of these, uh, that, so, so maybe you're representing the atmosphere, you're representing the, uh, the temperature and the amount of moisture in the atmosphere and uh, the pressure, uh, the air pressure, a whole bunch of meteorological things. Um, we know about physics. Um, we know some chemistry and other things. And we know um, how that physics works. And we can describe it with equations. We're going to put it on the computer. And we're going to run it forward in time. So this is the thing I think is super cool about the weather models that actually sometimes people don't don't know, which is that we use these laws of physics, right? The same kind of laws of physics that were used to design a steam engine in, in the Industrial Revolution. Things like if I force a bit of gas through a small tube, what happens to it? You know, it speeds up and that kind of thing. And by, by writing these equations down, these laws of physics in computer code, and then calculating them on, on a spinning globe with with gas on top of it weather just appears right we don't tell the weather forecast model what a storm is or what rain is and that kind of thing you know these emergent yeah emergent property right so that just means these things just happen you know they just happen as a consequence of these physical laws so i think that's really cool i didn't really know that before i started working with models and the other important thing to remember, we talked a lot about the physics and, and the math side, but there's also the whole IT side of, of building the model. So what a, a lot of resource and emphasis goes on here as well is on good computer coding. So we mustn't forget that side. We often kind of skip over it when we're talking about the more exciting properties of the atmosphere, but actually writing that up in a language that a computer can then understand and do those simulations on is and, quite complex. And expressing the maths in a way that gets computed efficiently. Actually, there's a whole department 
department here. And what they do is they just optimize the model by doing the maths in a way that the computer can calculate faster. It's a really interesting sort of technical challenge. And that, that turns out to save you a load of energy and money, yeah. basically. Go and explain that then. Well, well if you're running a computer... Uh, the more you run it, the more it costs. To, you know, uh, so the new supercomputer. We can talk about the new supercomputer that's coming to the office this year and next year. Um, so we're looking at, I think, two point seven megawatts. Right. I, th- I think we'll we'll come back to that later. Yeah. So that, that's a that's a lot of energy. So, so in case people aren't, aren't familiar, this this isn't a desktop computer, right? This is a big old computer. In fact, are you guys are you guys going anywhere in the next ten minutes? You just I know someone no. I can ask about this. One second, okay. back. So we're joined today by a special guest, Chris Maynard. So, uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hi. So we're in one of our new supercomputer halls at the minute. So do you just want to tell us a bit about this room and what's in here? So we're in in, uh, one of the IT halls, uh, which is a a big hall, and it has the supercomputers in it, the data store, and in fact, lots of the servers and uh, desktop servers that we use for desktop computing as well. So tell us a bit about what's the difference between what we're calling a supercomputer and what people might be more used to. So the kind of thing you might have at home, a desktop computer. Well, in some sense, they're not that different. I mean, the processors we have in the supercomputer are the sort of processors you'd get in, in any kind of internet server. Uh, but we just have a lot of them. And it's how they're connected together. They're connected together with a very fast and particular low latency network. So latency means the amount of time it takes for when you initial instruction for when it actually happens. And it's that network and the tightly coupling of all these processes together that makes the, the computer a supercomputer because it means all the processes can act together in one program. Okay, so it's just a bit like having loads and loads of desktops that are wired together really well. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. Okay, cool. So why does this? Why is the supercomputer made like this? Why is it made with lots of little sort of processes joined together? What's the advantage of that? Well, we're exploiting something called data parallelism, which means we can... Uh, we can split the problem up, the domain of the problem, um, in, into small. So each processor does a, does a, calculates the, the problem over the, uh, an area over the small area over the surface of the Earth, and can solve the equations that we need to do to do the forecast. But then it will need some some information coming from what's happening nearby, and that's the communication. And it was actually Lewis Fry Richardson uh, in the in the twenty in nineteen twenties who who first recognised that you could do this. Uh, that this data parallelism existed, existed. and his idea was to have a, a room full of computers to do this. But in the 1920s, a room full of computers was a room full of people, yeah. um, not a room full of machines. But that's all we're doing, we're just automating the process with the machine. But he was the first person to recognize that this kind of par- we could use this kind of parallelism to do the computation. So in those days, a computer was someone who computed, right? That's right, yeah. Someone, we'd probably call them a data scientist now, I guess, or something yeah. like that. But So the point is, just to make this clear again, each, we call them nodes in the supercomputer, Right, so each separate sort of calculating bit takes a different chunk of the atmosphere and does sums for that bit of the atmosphere, right? Yes. And Lewis Fry Richardson realized we could do this all at the same time, which means we can parallelize the problem. That's right. The complicated bit gets when you need to talk to another chunk of space, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, yeah. So we're just getting a new supercomputer at the Met Office at the minute. Could you tell us about just how fast that supercomputer is going to be? How powerful it is? It's, it's a very powerful machine. So at the moment in the, in the machine halls here, we've got, we've got uh, the phase 1A and phase 1B. So we've got two machines here. We have two machines for operational redundancy. Uh, redundancy. So 
if we have if we're doing an upgrade or there was a problem with one machine we've always got a, a second computer to do the forecast yeah because the weather forecast just has to go out that's right? right so the machines get used all the time for research and, and, and climate production runs as well so they're never they're never idle um so we have two machines at the moment. There are both about a hundred thousand processors in. Right. And and so if you think your if your desktop machine or your phone has maybe four or at most eight processors in, yeah, it's looking it's looking at you could about twenty five thousand times the number of processors, and that's kind of the difference between doing something in a second and doing it in a day. Yeah. So I think as of a couple of weeks ago, we now have the most powerful supercomputer in Europe. Um, we certainly have the most powerful supercomputer dedicated for weather and climate uh-huh. um, there are there are bigger machines but they tend to be national resources that are shared for lots of different I see different, different, okay. lots of different things we've got the probably the biggest single resource for weather and climate and we're still in the course of upgrading the supercomputer it's, it's going to get more powerful that's right, right. we have a uh, we're going to have a, a new machine hall uh, IT hall 3 with a, an even bigger machine in it with um, probably somewhere between 200 and 250,000 processors in so the question is, do you know where that puts us in the world ranking of supercomputers? Difficult to say because we don't have it yet, but probably something like but that machine alone will probably be in the top ten. Cool. Yeah, very. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, great. Well, thanks very much, Chris. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks uh, for having me. Let's go back to the guys in the studio. Sorry, guys. Back. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, thanks very much, Chris. And, uh, yeah, where were we? Full of fascinating facts about the new supercomputer. Right, well, okay. <laughs> okay, so we were talking about efficiency, weren't we? We were saying uh, that the more efficiently you can write your code to run on the supercomputer, uh, the, the less money it costs you, the less money it costs the taxpayer in this, in this case, uh, the less energy it costs to run, uh, and, the, and the better information that you get out of your computer. The interesting thing is these small marginal differences like add up because we're repeating everything so much. So if you can just make something a tiny fraction faster because we're repeating it so many times, it adds up to a significant gain. And of course then, when we come to do our forecasts, the better advice we can give to, for example, uh, airline pilots to make the best judgment they can about how to best use the winds to get themselves home more quickly, they use less fuel in which, you know, then there's a CO2 offset. So the energy that we're putting in to run the computer is then offset by the improvements to the forecast that the airlines can then use to make, use less fuel. Yeah, so ultimately the better we can make a weather forecast, the more useful the information is obviously to people. But it's not just a case of being useful for planning a barbecue at the weekend or something like that. You know, people actually use this to to save money with their businesses, you know, and the, the decisions they make. And Laura, you raise an interesting fact. It's not just the UK that we're interested in. It's, you know, people doing transatlantic flights, but also for the whole world. And we spoke in the last podcast about how we've got observations from globally these days from satellites and from dogs at Argo floats. So those of you that are on Twitter will have seen a little bit of a Twitter storm around Argo selfie. So well done, Doug. Um, Excellent. We'll have to generate something this week. But we should probably think about how we actually use that in a modelling sense. So here in the Met Office, we have a variety of different scales of model that we're using uh, from the global down to the much more local. Anyone want to pitch in with what they are? Yeah, I had I had a look at this um, so, and I'd like to ask Laura in a second, actually, what this means for, for her job as well. So, so it looks like we start with a global model. 
Is that right? So we're, we're with a lower resolution. So we're dividing the Earth up into grid boxes, essentially. Uh, and in each one of those grid boxes, we're making all the calculations um, on the atmosphere uh, and running that forward in time. So, so the lower the resolution, the larger the grid box, the less calculations that you have to do and the faster that it runs. So with those global ones, they kind of set this, the global scene. And then within that, you're running nested, what they call nested models. So inside those really global low-resolution models, you're running higher-resolution models getting down towards just the UK. And uh, I think, I think the, the highest resolution we're running at the moment is 1.5 kilometres. Is that right? Yeah, OK, that's good. Um, so so the, the lower resolutions are kind of on, on a side of a grid box. You're talking about 30 kilometres. So the point, the point being that the higher the resolution, it takes longer to calculate it because there's going to be more boxes, but the information we get is better. It's better for two reasons, right? It's better because we get a, a finer grained kind of forecast so we can tell what the inf- what the forecast is going to be for a smaller area but it's also better because it starts to resolve bits of physics that are smaller than the bigger grid boxes so let, let me just put that another way that when the grid boxes are small we can we can resolve sort of weather systems and things in more detail which means that we actually are more likely to get the answer correct with the forecast. And it's the same as having a digital camera. So if you yeah. think about megapixels, when you have much more megapixels, you know, these days you can get a camera quite easily with 15 million megapixels, whereas maybe 10 years ago they only had five. You see that improvement in the, well, the granularity the quality, or the quality. Yeah. yeah. You, you guys would be able to explain this better than I, but if I'm, if I'm right in thinking that the equations that make up that global model are roughly categorized into two so you've got what's called the dynamical core and then the physical process is that right and the yeah, two so things are linked of course but subtly so, so i always find it slightly confusing because the dynamical core the dynamics is the bit where all the physics is done right <laughs> does everybody else find this confusing as well so the, the dynamics is the bit where we have these laws of physics that we were talking about earlier but then when we want to figure stuff out that can't be resolved by that physics on that resolution, then we have to resort to this this other part, the, the physics or the sort of um, parameterization scheme. And this is a way of getting a handle on what's going on on a scale smaller than the boxes. So a classic example of this are things like individual clouds, right? So a lot of individual clouds are much smaller than the boxes in our model, but we've got this uh, this physics parameterization scheme where we can take the properties across the whole box and have a really good stab at what the properties of the clouds inside that box will be. And of course, the better our supercomputer gets, the more we can kind of put those parameterization processes to one side and start explicitly resolving things like convection which creates clouds and things which is you know some of the exciting things we might be able to do with the new supercomputer when it comes in so how how is it making uh, your job easier laura is it, <laughs> are you seeing are you seeing this happen have you seen this happen over the past um higher resolution um uh uh, modeling uh, make it easier for you so to... it, so it, it it kind of does and it doesn't it's it's sort of it certainly makes things easier because we can see, you know, so example, if we take some of our high resolution models, it actually will generate a little shower and you can follow that shower much as you would see it on a radar image in reality. Um, however, then you have to make the judgment. And this is where the human part of the forecasting process comes in. That the, the forecaster has to make an informed judgment by knowing the characteristics of the model as to whether that shower is realistic in a way and it's invariably it is of course you know we wouldn't be producing a model which would be or using a model which would produce unrealistic results however you know is it 
forming at the right time? You know, is it forming early enough in the day? Sometimes we see that the, the computer models don't always generate showers quite as quickly as you see them in reality. So we have to be aware of that. Um, and is it moving realistically? You know, is the flow correct? So is the shower going to move north? Well, typically showers um, in a northwesterly flow would move southeastwards. You know, is it is that actually what it's going to do? And therefore, you know, would London expect a shower at two o'clock in the afternoon or might it be earlier or later? So, so I mean, the other thing that's worth saying is it, presumably it makes your job easier because the answer is right more often as well. So, um, so we can raise the resolution as computer power increases, right? So who can remember the famous much-quoted Met Office statistic about precision. Is it not something like the one-day forecast now? No, the five-day forecast now is as precise as the one-day forecast was how many years ago, Laura? Uh, it's probably about probably about 40 years ago now, I guess. I think it's... It depends on how many days, Yes, it, you, yeah, I think it's choose. four days is 30 years, I think. If, yeah. Is that if right? I remember right, yeah, 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 yeah something like that. So. Yeah, so the point is, yeah. as we've geared up the resolution we've got in the supercomputer... And got better observations. Yes, well, again, harking back to the last episode, that's a really good point, Doug, and got better observations, then the precision of the forecast is going up. Maybe this is a good time to talk a bit about some of the, the stuff surrounding how we use observations in the forecast. So... On the most basic level, we use the observations to tell the computer what the state of the atmosphere is. Well, last time we looked, but let's say now, right? And then from there, we can sort of wind time forward by doing all these calculations of the physical laws on this grid in the supercomputer, and that gives us the forecast. But the forecast has to know what the weather is as well as it can right now. However, it's a little bit more complicated than that, isn't it? It is, and I mean, this is a process that goes by the, the name of data assimilation. It covers a whole variety of things, actually. And you're right. So we need to have our best representation of the atmosphere as it is, let's say, now. Um, and we've got all these millions of observations, but there's still big gaps, so over the oceans and things like that. And so we need to combine the model in a sort of a previous sense to get our best estimate from the modelling framework as to what the state of the atmosphere is and then combine that with the observations that we definitely know are now to, to pull those together to give us our starting point which we call the analysis and that's where we run forwards from. The other thing is that you know as you said we've got some regions where we have fewer observations but as we said on the last podcast I mean how many different types of observations did we talk about last week 15 20 or something oh, loads, like that? Loads wasn't it yeah. But these are completely different types of measurement and, and how do we make these comparable you know they've all got different kind of quirks and, and things to take into into consideration so a big part of data simulation is making sure that these are all in a level playing field and that you can mix them and use all this information together and that's you know data simulation is a really tough thing to do it really is and it's it's something that's very difficult to go into detail on on a podcast because actually very quickly you get into very complicated mathematics uh, and science and it's something I don't think any of us would... We're happy to be a bit geeky but uh, maybe this is pushing the boundaries. <laughs> I think so, indeed, yeah. It, you know, it's very hard to explain in, in a simple way but we've been trying. I've been desperately trying to come up with an analogy and not getting very far, I've the, got to be honest. The other thing that's um, worth talking about is how much effort is put into this computationally. I think I'm right in saying that as, as much computing time is spent on the data simulation as is actually spent on the forecasts, I think. Does that sound right? It sounds okay, we'll like, check that yeah. afterwards. It sounds <laughs> real to check that, but it wouldn't surprise me. But yeah. it's, it's interesting what you say, sort of touching on sort of the value of observations as well. It's, it's knowing what it's worth spending time and money on with these observations as well. I did read there was something about, um, I think you touched in your previous episode about the Great Storm, 
which is very exciting to me for reasons which we may or may not get onto. Mm. But um, you, you noted about the ships coming up or, or getting out of the way, basically, of, of the storm. But that being one of the things that can improve forecasting by using sort of automatic ops. But satellite, I, I read a, sat- a statistic that suggested that, and again, I may, may be wrong, but it's something like... Um, 65% of the value of observations is from satellite or the statistics mm-hmm. around that saying 65% of of the worth of observations comes solely from satellite and right. and that's and and that was one of the things i think alluded to in improvements in forecasting since the great storm is is the improvements in satellite so, observation so f- from my background and Doug's background in sort of more climate science there's certainly it's common to talk about the satellite era because when satellites came in it was such a game changer to the kind of the amount of science you could do because all of a sudden we really had a much more holistic view of what was going on in the atmosphere at any one time. The important thing being is it fills in the gaps where we don't have traditional observations. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And I mean, the conventional satellite era is sort of starting around the 1970s. Am I yeah, right? late, kind of mid to late 1970s, I think, yeah. And I think it's really interesting if you go back over the history of data assimilation. Yes, there were some of these ideas around, but it's really in the 1970s when the idea of combining four-dimensional data, so that's our sort of our three-dimensional gridded, global atmosphere as Doug was saying with with the time elements as well so you're assimilating data over a period of time not just for a static time so there's really develops there's something else that I think I'd like to try and talk about with data assimilation which is that when you're trying to put observations into the model world you've got to do it in a way that that doesn't um, upset the model. Oh, yeah, you you can dump things in and cause all sorts of problems. Yeah, so if you just go in and and tweak one grid point uh, in a a model, you're making something that's physically unrealistic, and this creates all kinds of crazy tension in this virtual world that you've got, and then you have all kinds of very weird and peculiar things that happen. So that's a big challenge. Yeah, you can create waves, for example. Waves in the atmosphere. Yeah, if you just put an an observation somewhere where... where, uh, the model thinks that it's slightly different from reality and just dump something in there. It'll create waves that propagate out that might not be there in real life. There's an interesting point on that because part of my job, you know, one of the things I do when I'm sat there on shift is actually look at observations at the surface in the upper air and see if they um, are representing reality or, if, you know, if we think they're not, then we can actually throw out observations and say... So we know that boy there is misbehaving, so we can tell the model, the next run of the model, to ignore it. So in, in some sense, we're trying to um, you know, help that process of not upsetting you know, the system. So, Doug, there's a, there's a famous quote by a statistician called George Box, which you love, about models. All models are wrong, <laughs> but some are useful. Yeah, and I, I love this quote as well. The reason we love this quote so much is it's so succinct but it says it just right. And what George Box is trying to say is that a model, by definition, isn't the real world. It's, uh, and this is the model in a general sense, so this could be a model of any scientific problem. It's, it's an r- expression of the real world that's, that you can do useful experiments with. So I guess what I'm driving at is this idea of turning the observations into something that the model's happy with. So, in effect, you're converting from a real-world set of observations into an equivalent set of observations inside this virtual model world. And actually, the thing you were sort of talking about, Laura, is the opposite of that. You know, you're taking these these uh, virtual model world kind of predictions, and then you've got to turn them back into what's happening in the real world. It's a sort of inverse data assimilation at the end of the process. So this data assimilation also uh, uh, creates... Well, if we think about the... Um 
the first episode of our po- podcast talking about the history of, of weather and looking at Philip Brohan, uh, I interviewed talking about old weather. Uh, and this, uh, you can create uh, basically a merged observation model world which um, back through time and you can recreate the weather back through time so i so if you're interested in that go back and listen to episode so one. is this the kind of thing they call reanalyses it's, right yeah, so right. yeah it, like you say it's where they try and use the physics of the model to take these sparse observations and spread them around the world so you've got a continuous field as a, as a modeler laura he, hearing you say oh sometimes we have to take away these observations uh, <laughs> the, the number of times I've heard modelers say well sometimes we, we look at the models and we look at reality and we decide that the models are actually closer to reality so, than the observations so, so to hear you say that is, 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 it's really good for a modeler a, it's a real key point about data simulation <laughs> we're sort of saying oh we're pulling all the observations but actually what's possibly overlooked is that there's the human aspect which is Laura and her colleagues saying oh no that's clearly wrong but the, the the computational aspect is also trying to identify when observations are going wrong or when there's a bias that seems mm. to be creeping out of control or just something doesn't make any sense. And sort of like the, the error checking that also happens not just on the human level, but on the, the sort of the computational level behind the scenes, as well, which is saying, right. I want my best observations and hang on, I want to get rid of anything that looks a bit spurious because it's going to affect the model, as you say. And, and Laura, would you say that you get, uh, you get better at that with time? Do you get to know the model? better and better and, and therefore know where it can it can go wrong and how to correct it that's right that exactly comes with experience and and like you say you know all models are wrong but some are useful but you, you need to know exactly in what sense they might be wrong to help make a useful forecast from them so so yes with, with experience comes comes a lot of that judgment and we you know we share a lot of knowledge with our colleagues both in forecasting and science as to you know what we see is going right or wrong with the models and we can then that feeds into the process of improving them as well in future so, so as i understand it as the resolution is getting higher and higher and these models are getting more and more precise this is becoming less and less of an issue for the for the meteorologists now so they're not weather forecasters anymore right mm-hmm. and this touch so if, for the people at home what i'm referring to is the, the official job title in the Met Office has actually been changed a couple of years ago. And the reason is because the majority of the actual forecasting is now handled by the models. They're precise enough that these corrections need to happen less and less. And so the, the job of the, the meteorologists is becoming about how to interpret the science of what's going on, about understanding the physical situation and being able to communicate that to people in a way that's useful for them, right? Yes, in essence. I mean, there is certainly still human value to be added to a forecast, indeed. Um, then then it comes to, I alluded to before, with the, the high-resolution models. You know, it can produce a shower, but you need to be able to guide a user, a non-specialist user of that forecast, as to whether that shower is doing exactly what we think it will. So you can, you know, yes, it, it, there is great accuracy from the models, but there's still that human input. And, and we can use other tools and techniques to help us with that as well, which uh, we may touch on ensemble for forecasting as well yeah so so i wanted to ask you a question actually so we said we've got a whole bunch of different models so we've got a global model which is about 17 kilometers we've got a european model which is at four kilometers and the uk model which is 1.5 kilometers this resolution there are some differences about the way they're initialized and we'll come to that but my, my question was really you're obviously looking at all of these data sets over the uk for example and are you making a conscious choice which one you want to go with or do you sort of blend them together how does so uh, it's a combination of, of things. I mean, th- these models, um, the, the ones you just described, are what we call deterministic models, which are basically a single solution model. Um, and what we can do is we can look at ours. We can also look at models from various other 
weather forecasting organisations from around the world. So there's the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasting who produce the models which we can look at and compare ours with and and, uh, there's the Americans uh, uh, GFS model as well. Um, And when it comes to deterministic models on you know, as as a tool, you know, we, we would probably do what we call a poor man's ensemble if we think that they all have some value to give or we can use the other models to say our model's actually showing the right thing, things like that. So, so to be clear, what we mean by deterministic is we start the model running, it runs forward into the future and gives us one answer, right? And, and it always gives you the same answer. If you if run you, it from the same point, it if you run it from the right. precisely the same precisely point. The same in fact, point. have we not talked about chaos theory no, on the podcast haven't. before? No. Oh, a little. I think it's Maybe come up, but we should do a whole episode on chaos theory. But yeah, anyway, th- this is a subject for another day. But we keep mentioning this word ensembles. And what we mean by ensemble is this idea of rerunning the model several times from very, very slightly different starting initial points. So very, very slightly, dif- um, very, very slightly different sets of the observations. And those give you a spread in the uncertainty of what's going to happen in the future. So say, how many ensemble members do we run as standard? 26? No. Uh, So it depends which model, again, you're talking about. So we've got a couple of different ensemble setups as well, because we're looking at the globe and we're also looking at the UK scale. So globally, if we're talking about the full forecast, so nowadays we're going out to seven days in our operational forecast, we run 12 different ensemble members out to the full seven days. And for the the UK domain, it's a little bit lower resolution, so it's 2.2 kilometres. But again, we run 12 members out, and that's for a short forecast time that's out to 36 hours. So I think by the time we get, um, with the new supercomputer, part of the ideal is to run more ensemble forecasts, right? And as I say, this just doesn't give you one definite answer. What it does is it gives you a sort of a feel for the uncertainty and what the forecast is going to do. Which is, um, it's, it's changing the way we do weather forecasts. This new supercomputer is allowing us to take a much more probabilistic uh, view of what weather forecasting is. So, yeah, let's stop there. So, for listeners at home, might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, you've gone from one answer to 12 answers. <laughs> How on earth does that work? So, now I'm going to look at Laura, who has to deal with this every day. <laughs> yeah, so, so not only do we have these deterministic models, we have the, on, the ensemble data. And again, we have our own. We have some from other forecasting organisations. We, we basically are number crunching in our heads. So all of a sudden you're looking at 50 different model simulations. You could have so many solutions. But the the, the idea is is that you pull out the common themes from these ensembles. So if they're all saying the same broad idea, you you know, for instance, there will be rain across the country on Friday, then you can be sure there will be rain across the country on Friday. What the ensemble can do for us is then show the variations around that theme. And if they're all saying roughly the same thing and within a couple of hours difference, you can say, okay, we're quite confident that the band of rain will move across the country with an error bar of a couple of hours each way. Um, If they're all saying you know, rain is expected, but there's much more what we'd call spread. So there's, there's, you know, that one mod member might have the rain band over Ireland at midday, whereas another might have it over Southeast England at midday. Then we can say, okay, we're not as confident on the timing of that rain band. And then we can start to add value to the customer by talking them through why that might be. So generally speaking with these ensembles, with these lots of, with these different representations, as you get further into the future, they agree less 
and less in general. And that sort of makes sense when you think about it. You know, stuff that's further away in the future is going to be it's going to be more difficult to really nail down exactly what it's going to be. But what I think is really interesting is actually that's not always the case. So if you've got a big storm coming through in a couple of days' time, that can be a really strong signal, which means all the ensemble members actually start to converge again and really agree for that day. But the weather for tomorrow or the day before the storm could still be really uncertain. So actually, it's not just the case that the further you get into the future, the more uncertain things get. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's exactly true. And I was on shift, uh, well, I only finished yesterday morning, in fact. So I've a quick turnaround since my night shifts. But we had exactly that. We had a, uh, there was quite a lot of uncertainty for Thursday of this week that we're currently in. Um, yeah, however, there was there, there was some convergence on the idea that, uh, you know, that there would be a weather system heading across the Atlantic for the weekend. And, you know, it got a bit uncertain again thereafter. But, yes, you do see that quite a lot. Uh, that, sorry, that, that, that comes into uh, something we come across in, in climate uh, all the time. People say, well, how can you predict the you know, climate of the Earth out 100 years' time uh, when you can't even do next week or whatever? And we say, well, OK, there's, it's a slightly different form of uncertainty. But I'd also say I, c- I can definitely tell you that next December is going to be a little bit chillier than, than this June coming up, so that there are other types of uncertainty that maybe we'll come back to in, in, in another uh, Other program. types of signal, yeah. Other types of signal. It's interesting, actually, because uh, my, my job is... is working on what we call the medium range bench which is uh, from two days ahead to 30 or further days ahead so as you go further through time what my job becomes is trying to forecast the detail for, for, for day two and the timings of weather fronts to for day 30 just picking out trends you know is it going to be warmer than normal colder than normal drier wetter and, and such like so as time goes further on the the, the forecast that we're producing has has a different sort of flavour to it go back towards the the climatological mean exactly. I guess towards you might expect in a particular month that's interesting we quite often see that so we have to then try and pull out other signals to see if you know is climatology what we're expecting or can we find some other evidence that it will be something different? so we should unpack what we mean by climatology here so the idea of climatology is it's the average weather for this time of year Uh, Yeah, okay. But it's more than that, though, isn't it? It's the distribution of weather. (laughs) You know, that's where you come across this time. So you would expect it to be this temperature, but you'd expect the range of temperatures to be kind of this much. Yeah, good point. Uh, So, But we can view it as sort of like the default weather, right? And so this is what we're saying. The further the forecast gets into the future and the less we we think about signals, so the less sort of information it's got about about some exceptional uh, weather setup that we've got in the atmosphere is observed right now as it gets further away and it doesn't know what to do it reverts to the default and we're talking you know as we run the the weather forecast on maybe two weeks or or four weeks into the future and that's that's slightly different that's where we start to overlap with coming into seasonal forecasting which uses a slightly different setup and has information about signal from the oceans and things like this as well that's another subject we should leave for another day that we should do an episode in seasonal forecasting that's an interesting note because we we talk about ensembles and when when they're all saying the same thing we can be highly confident however However, they're almost, in some senses, forecasts that you might hear forecasters say, they're more useful when they don't agree, because then you might say, well, okay, the, the, the sort of the mean, the average signal is for something akin to normal. However, there's a few members throwing in something a bit extreme. So that would make you sit up and take notice. Actually, we might just need to keep an eye on the fact that, you know, it might not be normal. We might have a, a, a an unseasonal storm or something coming our way. So, so, so there's a bit of a tricky question about why do we get this spread in the in the ensemble what does it actually represent 
So I, I think there's two things that actually feed into the reason that an ensemble spreads. So you're talking about uh, you're, we're back to chaos theory, right? Yeah. So we're back to um, we're back to the the tiny uncertainties that um, in initial conditions that can that can create uncertainty in the future, large uncertainty in the future. Uh, so this was Ed Lorenz back in the back in the fifties and sixties, wasn't it? He was first running numerical simulations uh, and wanted to rerun a, a, a simulation. Um, and uh, so he was sort of cutting corners, wasn't cutting he? And corners. He left so, so, in the nth decimal place. Yeah, off. it was like some crazy. I, I he don't know, only twentieth decimal place off of some initial condition, and found uh, that when the simulation went through, he ended up with a, a very different answer. A very so he fed, solution. His, he fed his obs back in, his observations back in, but he didn't make them quite the same precision and got a different answer. I, I guess what I'm driving at is, is that we get different answers from ensemble members, partly because there is some uncertainty in the model not representing the atmosphere perfectly. So that's, right? that's in our knowledge. So that's an uncertainty because we don't know. Exactly. Right? But there's also a spread because the atmosphere is just inherently chaotic. Yeah, it's, it's inside the atmosphere. That so the, just the so. physical system itself is chaotic. So you can view each one of these realizations. And in fact, one of the reasons we call them this word, realizations, is because they're all potential realities but this in is, a way. This is the cool thing. It, then chaos sounds like, oh, anything could happen. Yeah. Not anything could happen. These uncertainties are still bounded. Yep. It, you, suddenly you're not going to heat the surface of the earth up to the surface of the, the sun, sun, right? Yeah. That, that's not going to happen. So these, there's only a certain number of solutions or a certain sort of range of solutions that could happen. But within that, there's uncertainty. So that's the awesome thing about chaos theory. It, it realized that this stuff that looks uncontrolled isn't just completely random noise. It's really structured sort of, well, not randomness. It's really structured chaos as opposed to randomness. And our colleagues uh, in, in forecasting have to deal with that every day. Yeah, right? That must be tough. <laughs> but the way, we, the way we treat that in the model sense is not that we have this chaos equals zero to one kind of parameter you know we, we're actually having to uh, make sensible choices about what those ranges of extent of our uncertainties and our lack of knowledge are so but, but also putting- chaos is just it's emergent from the physical system you know it's a fundamental thing about the way that we connect these laws together when we run it we get a chaotic system because the system is chaotic not because we are representing it as a chaotic system i hope that makes sense we sometimes talk about entropy yeah so that's all linked, isn't it? I mean, I, I can never explain this quite well. I don't know if any of you guys are better at <laughs> entropy Lots than I am. Lots of shaking of heads. <laughs> but I think it's, 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 when entropy is high, it means that predictability is low. Is it's, that right? It's the measure of disorder of a system. Yes. That's right. So, so, so entropy, yeah, entropy always increases. This is things, a fundamental law of thermodynamics. Things always get more disordered unless you put energy in to try and make them more ordered again. So, so, so the best description I got of entropy is if you've got black coffee and you put milk in the top, right, it starts off with a blob of milk and some black coffee. And just through, you know, leaving it, leaving the system, it turns into a completely mixed thing. And no matter how much you stir your coffee, you're not going to accidentally stir the milk back out the coffee again. Right. And that's entropy. And it's a fundamental law of thermodynamics that entropy is always getting bigger when you take the whole universe as a whole. I suppose the point I'm trying to make, though, is that to create these realizations, we have to set up the models to do that. So the way we create these different realizations is that we either change something about one of the parameterizations that we know that we're uncertain about, um, or we change something about the starting position of the atmosphere that we equally know we're uncertain about, maybe because of biases in the temperature data or something. So we're trying to represent this chaotic evolution of the atmosphere, Mm -hmm. but 
we don't have a, a parameterization that just says chaos or yeah. entropy. You yeah. know, it's it's more like okay, well, we know we don't we know what we don't know about some of these things, and as Doug says, you know, within a range, the the temperature should be between somewhere here and here, or this physical equation works between these parameters and that's where you start putting in the the slight uncertainty that leads to these realizations so yeah as you say Laura, when they all come up with the same answer actually that's pretty impressive and it's an incredibly strong signal that it's normally something needs to be acted upon and that's you know communications which we'll talk about a bit in the more the next podcast um and how that feeds through into the outside world yeah so that seems like a good point to talk about what's coming next week which is we're going to go on to how we actually use the output of these models and give them to people in a way that's useful right so yeah i think that uh that just about cover everything to do with models we wanted to speak about this week i think so although it'd be interesting to know a little bit about how they've evolved in the historical sense and so i think catherine might have a useful piece of information and some historical uh, interest for us on this one and we caught up with her earlier in the week so let's go and see what she had to say Okay, so this week I thought I'd talk about Lewis Fry Richardson, who kind of came up with the concept of numerical weather processing. Um, and I've also got with me a couple of bits from the archive that relate to our very first supercomputer, uh, which probably had about the processing power of a decent mobile phone these days. Um, so Lewis Fried Richardson actually came up with numerical weather processing in 1922, would you believe? Um, so they hadn't even heard of computers. They hadn't designed anything like that in those days. Um, but he called the people that he was describing computers because they were actually doing the sums. By hand, right? Yes, by hand. Um, so he came up with a process, and it actually took him sort of weeks to produce a single forecast. But he figured out that if it was going to work and actually be usable, he'd need 64,000 people uh, working consecutively to actually produce a forecast in time. And a really enormous office. Yeah, actually, he, des- he described kind of how he imagined this could look, mm-hmm. and he called it a forecast factory. Um, and he, he actually, I've, I've sort of got a quote from his book here where he says, imagine a large hall like a theatre, except the circles and galleries go right around through the space usually occupied by the stage. The walls are painted to form a map of the globe, and the ceiling represents the northern polar regions, Australia's in the dress circle, and the Antarctic's in the pit. Fantastic. So I'm thinking on a bigger scale. So like Wembley is like 80,000 people, isn't yeah. it? So we're talking kind of Wembley, effectively. Yeah, not much short of yeah, Wembley. If had a yeah. dome in a big circle. But, but one of the cool things that he figured out was that each person could sort of do their own region of the globe, right? So yeah, this, absolutely. This, it's effectively parallelization, we call it, of the problem. You can do these different bits at the same time, which makes the problem tractable, even if it's going to take a long time with uh, when you're doing it by hand. At least it's, it's possible, right? Yeah, and I think that's what sort of then sort of went forward into into the computer model was that he had this idea that you know individual groups of people could work on individual squares of the globe and then all that information could be melded together um, and he had this idea of trying to keep track so they were all calculating at the same time with kind of different colored beams of light coming out from a central station to kind of make the people who were going slower speed up and slow down those who were calculating too fast. Yeah, so, so it's sort of about kind of governing a computer body. So he was going to shine a green light on the people who needed to go faster and a red light on the people who needed to go slower, right? Must have been a hellish job, right? That, that, that's someone that shining a red light <laughs> in your eyes. You're desperately trying to get your sums right. That, that sounds pretty much like what the metaphysics is at the moment. Yeah, it sounds pretty familiar. Yeah. One way to do performance management. Yeah. <laughs> Just blind you with a light. But my concept is that these people, if I stick with my Wembley analogy, okay, you've got somebody in the middle shining lasers at you, and and actually you're sat there with a piece of paper, and then you 
maybe somebody blows a whistle and you will hand a piece of paper to the people next to you? Is that sort of what he had envisaging um, as to how data would be Sort shared? of, yeah. You know, you, they sort of apparently had like little signs to their left or to their right, right where sort of their number would come up and that would help you with your calculation. And yeah. then you'd hand over a piece of paper to essentially a secretary who'd then run to wherever it needs to go next. So this is one of the key complications, <laughs> isn't it? Whilst you can do these calculations in the separate areas, they do actually need to speak to each other in between, we call them the time steps, so in between each time that you're calculating because they need to sort of tell the people next to them that the wind's blowing towards them and that, you know, the stuff they've got in their square at the minute is going to be in the square next door in the next time step. Yeah. I'm guessing, given the period, so this is 1922, you yeah. say, so I'm guessing they must have taken quite, or Lewis Fry Richardson took, um, took, took a lot of ideas from astronomy because I know that and I'm I'm going to I'm going to step out there and say I'm guessing a lot of these computers were supposed to be women right is that is that how it is well, well this is what so this is interesting in astronomy women made really large contributions to astronomy through being computers essentially being computers really yeah so so you you get a lot of women turning up on papers even though um, there weren't many women working in other sciences or, or uh, at the time because, because they just simply weren't allowed. Um, a lot of the time they weren't allowed that, to take degrees. That was uh, one of the example. really computationally intensive kind of areas of science, I suppose, astro- astronomy and astrophysics. Right? Ex- exactly. Right. Uh, so, so I guess that weather forecasting at that time was going to be taking its lead from, from astronomy, which was cutting-edge science. So, um, so it would be interesting to see the pictures or, um, or, or who, who was meant to be doing it. Yeah, this. I mean, he doesn't, doesn't really discuss sort of male or female particularly although he does talk about it sort of being set in a, a nice mountain scenery because those who calculate the weather, uh, calculate the air should breathe the fresh air too. Um, so the implication, I think, is quite a mixed environment. Um, but, I mean, certainly he was a mathematician, physicist, meteorologist, psychologist, yeah. uh, so he'd certainly have had you know, a lot of astron- astronomy in his background, I think. Do we have any of his sort of texts then in the archive that describe these ideas? Uh, yeah, we've got obviously the first edition of, of that sort of seminal work. Um, and we've also got the, the sort of printer's proof of it, where he was sort of still making notes and changing bits. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've also got, because he was a pacifist, um, he used the same principles to try and predict um, causes of war and how to prevent them. And so he wrote a book about that. And we've also got that book. Oh, right. So he was Slightly different. Yeah. Just interested in the meteorology. Yeah, no, no, he worked interest. in you know, a very wide field, I think. Yeah. Fascinating. I never knew that. <laughs> OK, so we're now at the end of part two of our mini-series on how we generate a weather forecast. So in the first podcast, which do go back and listen to if you haven't done already, we looked at observations and we considered how all of these bits of data feed into our knowledge of the state of the atmosphere. And then over the course of this podcast, with everybody's help, we've looked at how we then use that information, how we feed that into models, what these models are, and and where we're going in terms of understanding the chaos of the atmosphere and how that translates into a model forecast. And then what Laura and your team interpret from that. And then in our next podcast coming up next month, we're going to look at then how do we communicate that information? Uh, So what do the Laura and your friends and colleagues, how do you transmit that piece of information to the public, to us sat in this room? We all consume the weather forecast. And what are the the techniques and the skills that we use to do that? So if anybody's got any questions for our next podcast, then get in contact with us. You can tweet me at Neil, that's Neil, N-I-A-L-L, H. Robinson. You can tweet me at Doug McNeil. Spelt M C N E A W L. I'm on Twitter occasionally at <laughs> Claire S. Whittam. 
Yeah, and if you have any questions about the, my my job or, or, or what I do and how I use models, um, I'm on Twitter at WeatherGill, which is like Weather Girl without the R. It's a play <laughs> on my surname. I think that's a brilliant Twitter <laughs> handle. That's great. I wanted to get that in. Um, or you can contact us more generically by email um, at mostlyweather at metoffice.gov.uk. Um, we do really welcome any questions or any feedback. Uh, give us something tricky that we can look at in another episode. Go on, <laughs> I dare you. Okay, well, I think that's it for now. So just want to thank you, Laura, yeah, for thanks, stopping Laura. by. Thank, thank you for having me. And we will see everybody in the next podcast episode. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.